Notice we wrote in that this is Israel, Daniel's people, the 69 weeks, because remember the whole 77s are for Daniel's people and his holy city, Jerusalem. The mysterious gap, uh, and then Israel, uh, and then uh, the Revelation chapters are 2 and 3, which are the church age to seven churches, uh, and then six, chapter 6 through 19 uh, are the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the Chapter 20 is the millennium, and chapter 21 goes into that amazing, the new heaven and the, and the new earth after the, the earth uh, melts with a fervent, a fervent heat. The salvation covenant, Israel, again, more on that next week. Uh, and uh, the church age during the mysterious gap, and this ends with the pre-trib rapture. So again, this is being taught from the pre-trib rapture view, and we're talking about the strengths of the pre-trib rapture. Um, and then it goes back for seven years back to Israel, and then the new Jewish covenant, something that, uh, that uh, you may never have understood that concept or even heard of that concept. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, the duration here, the 69 sevens, is 483 years, Babylonian biblical years. Uh, the gap, no one knows. Jesus said it over and over again. Nobody knows. No one knows. We don't know when this will end. Uh, it, could, it, could come to, it could happen tonight or it could happen in 2,000 years. We just don't know. And then seven years for the tribulation, 1,000 years for the millennium, uh, and then, uh, of course, eternity. Uh, time without end. And um, uh, tonight, we're going to springboard off of one of the really startling precepts that we worked on in last week's application number two. So write it in. I want This was from last week, but I want you to, to, to uh, see it. Uh, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Because not only was the church not the only plan... It wasn't even the original plan. And this fact has been so utterly ignored by the church, I want us to return to the text in Romans that we looked at last week, one that rarely gets looked at but is amazing. Look at this. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? The Jews. May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But by their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, if someone might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, back now to the Israelites, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. But some of the branches, meaning Israel, branches or Israelites, branches were broken off, and you, now talking to Gentiles, you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them in the rich root of the olive tree. So the original plan, the olive tree, still intact. We, the church, almost all Gentiles, have been, have been grafted in to the salvation plan. It's really remarkable. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Again, don't be arrogant that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the end of the mysterious gap. Because when the mysterious gap ends, the 70th seven for Daniel's people, Israel, will begin. And so, at the end of that seven, all Israel will be saved. The amazing doctrine of the remnant. Maybe someday we'll, we'll talk about that. So, as we begin tonight... Based upon this passage, let's look at five olive tree facts that flow directly out of Romans chapter 11. Ready? Write it in. 
Olive tree fact number one, the olive tree represents Israel and the original salvation plan. Number one, the olive tree represents Israel and the original salvation plan. Number two, fact number two, some of the native branches were broken off. Some of the native branches were broken off for their unbelief. Very clear in the text. They were elected. They were supposed to be saved personally, but they were they were broken off because of their unbelief. Fact number three, the Gentiles have been grafted into the original plan. Think of that. The Gentiles, we, the church, have been grafted into the original plan and currently make up more than 99.8% of the followers of Messiah globally. To put that in a number that's easier to think about, about one in 500 followers of Christ, believers, uh, Christians, are Jewish. And 499 out of 500 current believers on the planet are not of Jewish descent. And then all of tree fact number four, despite all of the years of Israel's rejection of God, this is really important. Paul makes it so clear. You ready? God has not rejected the olive tree. And then olive tree fact number five, a day is coming when the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete, exactly what Paul, those are directly out of the text, exactly what Paul says, the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete, Israel's hearts will be changed, and all Israel will be saved. So if you want the in-depth teaching on how in the world can God save an entire nation, that remnant that is left, most of them, of course, having been slaughtered by Antichrist, um, comes in uh, Thursology number 38. If you haven't seen that or haven't seen it recently, uh, we go through those amazing precepts. And all of this leads to a biblical blind spot of the church. Here, ready? A biblical blind spot of the church. Because the grafted in plan, because the grafted in plan has been the plan for so long. You ready for this? This is a crack up. Most of the branches who, by the way, have been grafted in, have forgotten that God will fulfill the original plan. Now look what you've written in. Because the grafted in plan, ready, the church, us, the Gentiles, the grafted in plan has been the plan for so long, 2,000 years, most of the branches have forgotten that God will fulfill the original plan. So this is so outside of what's typically taught in the church about Israel. Some of you may still be scratching your head over the, all of these concepts, and you may either be thinking that this is heresy, or at least you just can't believe that you've never heard this before. And because of this, let me give several more passages of Scripture that show how clear the Word of God is about this. Look with me at Romans 1.6. It's hard to believe this is in the New Testament being written by the Apostle Paul. Look at this. In fact, this, these texts are so important, I'm having you fill in the text, but this is the biblical text. Ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Almost everyone who preaches on this that I have ever heard, or teaches on this, or puts this on a poster, or memorizes this, leaves the rest of the verse out. Because you're ready? Let's read the whole verse and write it in. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To, ready? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And clearly here, the Greek, in the context of what he's writing, the Greek here means Gentile, means Jew and not of Jewish descent. Now remember, this isn't the apostle reminiscing about the Old Covenant, 
This is Paul teaching fundamental precepts to the church about salvation. And he wrote uh, this to the Romans at least two decades after Pentecost. So this is not Paul teaching the Old Covenant. This is Paul in the New Covenant teaching this. And notice he, he doubles down on this precept Look in uh, Romans 2, 9, and 10. Look at this. Again, I'm having you write the text in. It's so surprising. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But the good news, glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and to the Greek. And now, if you really have paid attention to Jesus' teaching, he gets even more blunt about this concept. Let's pick up the story when he was pursued by the Syrophoenician woman. Here's this Canaanite, okay, uh, near Tyre and Sidon. And uh, look at Matthew 15 with me. Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, Listen to this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Are you kidding? We're gonna, I thought he came for the world. We're going to unpack this and see the brilliance of Jesus' worldwide salvation theology in this focus on Israel. Ready? But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, isn't it amazing? When we ask Jesus, it's like he just, it's like he just can't take it. So look what he does. He, he, he doubles down on his theology, and then it's amazing what happens at the end. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what she would have understood, because that's what the Jews called the Samaritans and the Canaanites. They called them dogs. Gohim is literally the Aramaic word. Ready? But she said... Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. This woman was not going to take no for an answer because she knew she had found the Savior of the world. This is an awesome picture of people. Anyone can get saved, even Canaanites, when they pursue the Lord. Look at this. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. By the way, there's not a single time that Jesus said that to any of his disciples. Not once. Think of this. Your faith is great. It shall be done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Isn't this amazing? This passage has created such angst and controversy in theological circles. It sounds cruel. It sounds condescending. Jesus sounds bigoted. But the point that Jesus was making was that the only way for the world to identify the one true Savior was within the context, this is it, was in the context of him fulfilling every prophecy from, ready, from the Hebrew scriptures and in the setting of God's covenant people. It was the only way to find the Savior of the world. If he didn't come as Israel's Messiah, flawlessly meeting every Jewish messianic mandate, then not only would Israel not have a savior, but listen, the world wouldn't have a savior. 
And this gives us a fundamental messianic truth. Here's your blanks, write it in. It was through Israel and to Israel. Listen, it was through Israel and to Israel that the Savior of, you ready? The Savior of the world had to come. And this helps us understand the resolution of Jesus' apparent rudeness, right? I mean, it just sounds rude. Rudeness to the Canaanite woman. Ready? Here's your blanks. The reason Jesus was so focused on Israel was because the only way for the world to be saved was for Israel's Savior to show up. Ready? <laughs> to show up for Israel. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. This is what Jesus is, is saying. Look at this. The reason Jesus was so focused on Israel was because the only way to save the world, for the world to be saved, was for Israel's Savior to show up for Israel. And this leads us directly to a key concept. Here it is. Write it in. I'm going to make up, I think I'm making up a word here, but, but here we go. The reason Jesus showed up exclusively for Israel. I mean, he said, I was sent only to the, to the children of Israel. It's like, hey, wait, I, wait a second. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not here for you. I'm here for Israel. The reason Jesus showed up exclusively for Israel was so he could unexclusively, so he could unexclusively save the whole world. If Israel's Messiah didn't come exactly as the Hebrew text demanded to Israel, through Israel, from Israel, then the world has no Savior. So now let's see how clearly this was announced on the very cross itself, right? On the parchment that's been called the titulus, the parchment that had in three languages what was above Jesus' head. Jesus was dying for the world on the cross, and look what it said on the titulus. And above his head, they put up the charge saying against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So here's the key concept. The only Savior of the world, the only Savior of the world, the only Savior who could hang on a cross, take the curse, and save the world, is the King of the Jews. So, because this concept has been so ignored in the teachings of the church, I want us to see it coming from Jesus again. And, and when he and his disciples were in Samaria, he met the woman at the well. You may be familiar with that story. And he was talking to uh, here about the water of life to her. And look at this in John 4. The text is in your notes. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and your people say that Jerusalem is the place that men ought to worship, comparing there the Samaritan uh, false religions to the true uh, biblical Hebrew religion. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, meaning Samaria, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. You're ready? <laughs> from Jesus, for salvation is from the Jews. Here we have an explicit teaching directly from Jesus. Write it in. It's almost impossible for the typical church, Christian, Gentile believer to write this in. But you ready? Salvation is from the Jews. Well, of course salvation is from the Jews because the woman, the wife of God, is the one who birthed 
the male child that is the only hope of saving the world. Of course salvation is from the Jews. So as you look at the teaching from Jesus, ask yourself, when was the last time you heard someone preach on this? And now we're set up to cover some even more radical ideas that are actually biblical truths. You ready? I've, I've given them here as four crazy biblical church truths. Ready? Crazy truth number one. Here's your blank. The Old Testament says nothing specifically about the church. Have you ever noticed that? That's right. The Old Testament says nothing specifically about the church. Doesn't the Old, but you may ask, doesn't the Old Testament constantly talk about the new covenant? Yes, absolutely it does. But it says nothing about the church. Let that soak in for a minute, and we're going to come back to biblically support this in the application because it sounds so absurd. Crazy truth number two. Ready? Write it in. There are passages in the Old Testament that, in retrospect, that in retrospect apply to the church. But none of these require the church for their fulfillment. More on that later. Think about that. There are passages in the Old Testament that in retrospect apply to the church, but none of these require the church for their fulfillment. Crazy truth number three, here it is, the new covenant. The new covenant is not the same as the church. <laughs> what? More on that next week. The new covenant, that's right, the new covenant is not the same as the church. And crazy truth number four, and this is a complete mind blower. You ready? The new covenant could have been fulfilled. You ready? The new covenant could have been fulfilled without the church. Without the church. Now at this point, there's a very reasonable question to ask, and it arises from a common understanding in the church. You ready? And this is, this is well known and it's broadly known and broadly understood. Look at this. Ready? Write it in. God moved on from his covenants with Israel. God moved on from his covenants with Israel because when Christ came, they were rendered obsolete. In fact, isn't that exactly what it says in the book of Hebrews? Doesn't Hebrews teach clearly that the old covenant was made obsolete by a new covenant? Let's look. Look at the Hebrew text from, uh, from chapter 8. Now, but now he has obtained, he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, the Jewish salvation covenant for the world, for the Jews to help save the world, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second when he said, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. There it is, right in the text. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Fascinating. And next week we'll deal with this issue in more detail. But for the moment, even though the old covenant was rendered obsolete by Christ, a fact remains. The church has never was never prophesied in the Old Testament. And since it appears to many believers that the church was the main event and that the church at least functionally appeared to replace Israel, it seems strange or even bizarre that God didn't announce the church was coming in the Old Testament. 
So here's what I'll take on tonight. More next week, but here's what I take on tonight. Since there are parts of the Old Testament that are directly relevant to the church and directly relevant to the role that it has played in salvation history, it's easy to believe that the church was needed for those scriptures to be fulfilled. But this isn't true. And in fact, this is key concept number one for what we're taking on here. Look at this, number one, write it in. There were many Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled by the church that could have been fulfilled, indeed, should have been fulfilled by Israel. Look at what you just wrote down. There were many Old Testament prophecies that that were, uh, have been fulfilled by the church, that could have been fulfilled, indeed should have been fulfilled by Israel. So let me give you an example to make this concept clear. Look from Hosea chapter 1 and 2. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which you cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it has been said to them, you are not my people, it was said to them, you are the sons of the living God. I will sow her for myself in the land, God speaking, I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, see, this is in retrospect, this is about the grafting in of the Gentiles into the olive tree. I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, so from chapter 11, as I just alluded to, since Israel is currently rejecting God's plan, he is grafted in the Gentiles who were not God's people, and now the church has become his people. But now let's look at key concept number two. Ready? Here's the blanks. Just because there are Gentiles who have joined God's salvation plan as part of the church. Let me say that again. Just because there are Gentiles who have joined God's salvation plan as part of the church, there is thereby no, this by no means can be taken to mean that Israel couldn't accept God's salvation plan. And now, to get us prepped for the application, let's return to Daniel's prophecy of the 70th seven and the mysterious gap that we've been studying. Look from a few excerpts here from Daniel 9. 77, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Then after the 62 weeks, so this is at the end of the 69 weeks if you read the whole text, The Messiah will be cut off, there's a crucifixion, and the people of the prince who is to come, Romans, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And he, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, as we know, he will make a firm covenant, the peace treaty, for many, with the many, for one seven. This is the tribulation, as we know, the 70th week of Daniel, waiting to be fulfilled. So notice, here's your blanks, what Daniel 9 does not say that Israel couldn't have accepted their Messiah or that they couldn't have moved directly from the 69th into the 70th seven. Look at that again. Daniel 9 does not say that Israel couldn't have accepted their Messiah or that they couldn't have moved directly from the 69th into the 70th seven. That blows your mind when you think about the implications of, okay, then (laughs) what happens? There's the crucifixion and what happens. But but let me unpack this a little bit and we'll have more on it next week. So Daniel, think about it. Daniel broke up the sevens at number 69 and provided a prophetic wrinkle, if you will, in time. So God could use another people 
if Israel refused to join his plan. God wasn't going to be held hostage to the obedience of Israel in order to save his world. So he has Daniel put the wrinkle between 69 and 70, right? But there's nothing that requires a time gap between the Messiah coming to Israel and them accepting him as Savior. And this leads us to key concept number three. Write it in. Look at this. These are really mind-blowing when you think about it. While the church has filled the gap, while the church has filled the gap between Israel's 69th and 70th sevens, look again. 69 happens, they reject their Messiah, enter the church, the mysterious gap. Ready? While the church has filled the gap between Israel's 69th and 70th sevens, there's absolutely nothing in Daniel's prophecy that requires that there had to be a gap between them. Now at this point, you might be wondering why I've spent so much time developing the biblical theology of salvation as it's linked to the olive tree, as it's linked to Israel. Well, it turns out that the precepts that I've been teaching tonight are incredibly important, not just for Israel and not just for eschatology and not just for theology, but you ready? For literally every single human being. And we'll deal with this in the application. But first we need to look at two necessary concepts that set up the application. Ready? Here's your, here's your first one, a biblical truth. It's almost impossible to comprehend. Write it in. Ready? For 20 centuries, the church has been considered a given by Christians. But the church is actually a biblical mystery. More on that in a second and could not have been foreseen in the Old Testament. Look at this, right? It's almost impossible to comprehend. For 20 centuries, the church has been considered a given by Christians, but the church is actually a biblical mystery and could not have been foreseen in the Old Testament. Now, notice something with me. Here I'm using the term mystery as a theologically technical term. Okay, I'm not using, this is not like Agatha Christie here, okay? Not what we typically think of mystery today. I'm using the technical theological term mystery, and so I'm going to give you the definition. Ready? Here's a theological definition of a mystery. Ready? A biblical mystery, here's your blanks, is an event or concept that appears in the New Testament and is consistent with the Old Testament, because obviously if, you're, uh, if you have a New Testament theology developed that is inconsistent with the Old Testament, then there's something wrong with your New Testament theology, right? Is consistent with the Old Testament, but was not anticipated in the Old Testament. Ready, right? Look at that definition again. A biblical mystery is an event or concept that appears in the New Testament and is consistent with the Old Testament, but is not anticipated in the Old Testament. In other words, a biblical mystery is something that doesn't violate any Old Testament precepts, but it appears for the first time in the New Testament. And it turns out that there are surprisingly few of these. Most scholars who have studied the biblical mysteries believe that there are either 12 or 13 actual true biblical mysteries that meet that definition. Only 12 or 13 of them. And let me give you an example. Here's a well-accepted biblical mystery. It's one that we've been spending a huge amount of time on. Ready? Write it in. The rapture. One of the 12 or 13 biblical mysteries is the rapture. And why is it a mystery? Here's your blank. Why is it a mystery? Well, there are hints of this kind of event with Enoch and Elijah. 
right? Those two very mysterious uh, catching away by God. Notice, there are hints of this kind of event with Enoch and Elijah. No one could have anticipated that we will all be changed. While there are hints of this kind of event in Enoch and Elijah, no one could have ever anticipated that we will all be changed. That's a, a mystery that comes only during the New Testament covenant. You only have snapshots of the potential in the Old Testament, so it's not inconsistent with Old Testament teaching. You even have examples of it. But the idea that everyone, everyone living who follows the Jewish Messiah would boom, be resurrected, or if living, changed, boom, everyone has that kind of event like Enoch and Elijah. No one could have anticipated that. So it's a biblical mystery. So uh, now that we've, uh, uh, we can use what we've learned tonight, um, we've uncovered another biblical mystery. Ready? And this is universally accepted. The other, another biblical mystery is the church. Now, doesn't that sound bizarre? A biblical mystery is the church. As strange as it sounds, if you only had the Old Testament, you would not be able to predict that the church was coming. And in fact, what you would have anticipated, think about it. Think about what God says over and over again in the Old Testament. What you would have anticipated at some point is that Israel would accept their Messiah and be saved. Paul says it again in Romans 11. There's going to come a point where God is going to save all Israel as he has promised over and over again. So you'd anticipate that this, this was in the Old Testament as a doctrine because God said it so many times. And now we have the background for the second setup for tonight's application. Ready? An astonishing, history-changing event that could have happened in Israel when Messiah came. You ready? Here's your blanks. While Daniel's provision for a gap between weeks 69 and 70 is clear, nothing in the prophecy prevented Israel from transitioning directly into the 70th seven. Wow, look at that. While Daniel's provision for a gap between weeks 69 and 70 is clear, nothing in the prophecy prevented Israel from transitioning directly into the 70th seven. And in fact, there are many Old Testament texts where it's clear that that was God's expectation, that Israel would do that, that they would receive their Messiah, and that without hesitation or delay, they would receive their Messiah and be saved and then help him save his world. That was God's plan for Israel. And so now that we've set this up, these two remarkable concepts make us ready for the application. Ready? Here's your blanks. The fact that everything in the Old Testament could have been fulfilled by Israel, mind-boggling. Look at that. The fact that everything in the Old Testament could have been fulfilled by Israel and did not require the church to come along has profound implications for human destiny. Now this gets really cool. As you'll see, this theology leads to some incredible truths that relate directly to the potential for the future of every person who's ever been born. So let's begin the application with several key concepts that flow out of what we've learned. Ready? Key concept number one, here's your blank in the 70th seven. The 70th seven could have begun immediately after Messiah was cut off if Israel had accepted him. Number one, the 70th seven could have begun immediately after Messiah was cut off if Israel had accepted him. Number two, all Israel could have, all Israel could have showed up 
at Pentecost. That's right. They were all invited. Key concept number three, instead of 3,000, there could have been 3 million from Israel who were saved that day. When the universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred and Jesus launched this incredible covenant, all Israel could have been there. Approximately, historians tell us, approximately 3 million Jews lived in Israel at that point. Isn't that an amazing concept? But only 3,000, almost all Jews, not completely, but lots of Jews. We know there were 17 languages, so it wasn't all Jews, but a lot of Jews. And notice, and now we're ready to return to the biblical mystery of the gap between 69 and 70. And let's do this by asking an obvious set of questions. Lots of blanks here, so I'll read it twice. Why did God not foretell something as momentous as the church in the Old Testament? And why didn't the prophets predict the new program of Gentile believers making up the body of Christ or the body of Messiah, as they would have used the term in the Hebrew? Why did God not foretell something as momentous as the church in the Old Testament? And why didn't the prophets predict the new program of Gentile believers making up the body of Christ. Why? The answer to these questions gives us a gigantic, a gigantic doctrinal foundation. Are you ready? Here's your blanks. Because, why? Because if the Old Testament had foretold the church, then Israel was predestined to fail. Oh my. Look at that. A gigantic doctrinal foundation. The answer to why the church was not predicted, prophesied, foretold, was because if the Old Testament had foretold the church, then Israel was predestined to fail. So think about this. The mystery of the church is a powerful biblical statement of the high value that God places on human choices. It's a powerful statement of God's regard for our ability to choose to respond to him or not. And it's clear evidence for the doctrine of free moral agency. While God knows everything that will happen, every detail, nonetheless, even though we know he has spoken the end from the beginning, nonetheless, he has carefully constructed history in such a way, and prophecy, as we've seen, in such a way that no one has been predestined to reject him. And this is why he boldly announces through the Apostle Peter that God wishes that none would perish and that all, everyone, would come to repentance. And now, moving from the realm of national Israel and the theology of human freedom, let's realize that these precepts also have profound implications for each of us personally. Why? Because for many of us, people may have been saying things like, listen, or fill in your own blanks, but many who are listening and who will watch, many have heard things like this. You ready? You'll never amount to anything. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're too short. You're a loser. You don't have what it takes to succeed. In fact, there's a sad and common theme experienced by many people. Look at this. These are your last blanks. A sad and common theme experienced by many people. Other people, maybe even some of those who should have loved you most, have said, 
in one way or another, you're destined to fail. Look at that. A sad and common theme experienced by many people, other people, maybe even some whom should have, of whom should have loved you most, have said, in one way or another, you're destined to fail. And then add to all of this the words that come from the enemy of our souls. You don't deserve to be God's child. God would never love you. You're not good enough. You've been caught in that sinful habit for so long that you'll never be able to have victory over it. God would never save somebody like you. Or you've been saved, you think, in your mind for a long time. But you're not perfect yet. And God only saves perfect people. The enemy comes with all of these lies. But here's what the Word of God has taught us tonight. Here's the biblical truth. God has made you for greatness. God has incredible plans for you. God wants you on his team. He wants you to join him in his purposes. God is for you. And praise God, if God is for you, no one can be against you. You've been made for a great purpose. You've been placed on this earth because God thinks so highly of you. And he's destined you to be conformed more fully to the image of his son. In fact, if you're in Christ, you ready? When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's right. If you're in Christ, then the old has passed away and all things have become new. And your mighty king who made you in his image and foreknew all of your days, even before you were in your mother's womb. That mighty king has written winner all over you. He's written champion all over you. He's loved you with an everlasting love, and he has destined you to live with him forever in his perfect presence. So what does it mean that the Hebrew scriptures didn't prophesy the church? You ready? It means that no one is predestined to failure. And it means that anyone who has ever told you that you're a failure was wrong. They're dead wrong. And they're saying the exact opposite of what the mighty one of Israel is saying. I made you. I have known you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. So listen again as we close. Against the many loud voices that may have been telling you that you're worthless, you're a failure, you'll never cut it. Against those loud voices and the voice of the enemy comes the eternal father announcing the wonderful mystery. And through this mystery, he's saying, you are not destined to fail. And the awesome Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, has created you for greatness. And he has predestined you to be like Jesus.